Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I wasn't here last week because I was attending the farewell to Chris Gaffney and a great farewell it was too. This is Joan Bartlett and I'm here for Tuesday Home Time until 6 o'clock this afternoon. Today, crisis in the Amazon rainforest with Dr Ralph Newmark who's the director of the Latin American Institute at La Trobe University. An update on the proposed referendum vote on Bougainville with Luke Fletcher from Jubilee Australia. Western Sahara update and the visit next month of a health worker from the refugee camps in Algeria. We're speaking with Kate Lewis. Bob Helps Phelps with his monthly Gene Ethics Network program and Nick McClellan reporting back from the Pacific Islands Forum. Nick's a journalist, author and researcher and it looks as though our illustrious Prime Minister didn't go down too well in the Pacific. Um, well deserved too, I think. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when once again we heard that mantra of fossil conservatives. Coal remains an important industry for True Blue Aussie and it remains part of the global energy mix. Fossils Energy Minister Mark Canaban of Coal or Fossils Minister Angus Failure or maybe Big Supremo Scuttle the Morlach Sun himself flashing a lump of beautiful coal I hear? No, no, none of them. It was Socialist Party out of control radical Penny Left Wing. And it's so refreshing to know the Socialist Party has learned its lesson. Don't oppose the government on anything. A surefire method of getting yourself elected. Ask whether the uh, whether the uh, socialist or stroke she would not have upset our Pacific neighbours, unlike scuttle them in rejecting a call to ban coal, Penny reassured the great international resource corporations, of course not, coal remains an important industry for True Blue Aussie, and it remains part of the global energy mix. Just thought I'd repeat that. But Penny then displayed the cosmic policy difference between the two major parties. Scuttle then did not respect the importance of climate change to nations it is wiping off the map literally, she said. So presumably, Penny would have rejected the coal ban in the communique with respect, sensitivity. Uh, thank you, Penny. Thank you, socialists. Thank you, True Blue Aussie, they would have said, for being so considerate about destroying us. Similarly, on the threat of climate change, if there is, in the With Friends Like These Who Needs Enemies department, this week, former Fossils Minister, now coal lobbyist Ian McFarton, praised Penny for her endorsement of coal and abandonment of our neighbours. I was heartened, he said. Penny is a very pragmatic person. Anthony Albanese should be congratulated for aligning the socialists on this and taking a bipartisan approach with the government on coal. 
Egan, of course, is not the with French subject. We expect that of him. No, Anthony bipartisan, Anthony alongside Penny. And the socialist fossils resources shadow Joe Facts Given Wrong, who said true blue Aussie coal is relatively clean. That's like saying renewables, the sun, the wind are relatively dirty. Anyway, relatively clean would be used to generate electricity for at least another 20 years. And we should continue to capitalise on the demand for coal to create wealth and jobs here in True Blue Aussie. Echoing another with friends like a contestant that highly esteemed not evil union, the AWU, which attacked the New South Wales Caring Business Class Party government. Oh, for its anti-worker agenda are here again? Well, no again. It attacked the government for not standing up to activists, including many farmers opposed to coal seam gas extraction and fracking, for not driving forward the development of local gas resources. See, it's jobs, jobs, jobs and the economy, stupid. Infinitely more times important than irrelevancies like saving the planet. And pragmatic penny? During the election campaign, she was a strident voice against coal. So we can expect serious, meaningful differences in climate policy next election from Joel and pragmatic penny and bipartisan Anthony. Ditto on the world stage. Thanks to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, at the G7, the rich of the world talk fest, failed to issue a final communique on climate change, if there is, as Donald announced separately that he believed in exploiting the financial benefits of fossils while ensuring the US of has the cleanest air and the cleanest water in the whole world. And he knew more about climate change than almost everyone else in the whole world. He did modestly say more than almost anybody, but the others, the G6, said he didn't understand how to address the issue. Expressing concern and the need for doing something doesn't mean you have to do something. You don't have to do anything. And it allows us to express the same concern and need to do something at the next Rich of the World Talk Fest. Speaking of the profits in fossils, Donald expressed his deep personal concern for the population of Greenland, the 52nd state, by offering to buy the place off Denmark. An incredibly generous offer. No relation whatever to getting US of hands on all those lovely resources being liberated by the melting ice and melting permafrost. A perfect circle. The corporate fossils create the melting, then take advantage of it so they can assist the whole world to have energy. And poor Donald was quite properly upset when Denmark not only knocked back his offer, but described it as absurd. How disrespectful can you get? So disrespectful, Donald was forced to cancel a state visit to Denmark, and we all know Donald isn't easily upset by ignoramuses who disagree with him. As Donald offers and Denmark declines, wonder what the Greenland population itself thinks of the whole thing. Standing in the back row at the G7 group photo, scuttle them was the talk of the world leaders even if not by name. Uh, who's he? They all asked. Now, perhaps our only comment on that decision this week. We can have mixed metaphors, so surely we can have mixed nursery rhymes. 
Georgie Porgie, Puddin' and Pie, kissed the boys and made them cry. All the king's horses and all the king's men will never put Georgie together again. But let's hope the verdict helps the living victim and other victims get together again. Sadly, it's too late for George's second victim. In this co- No, a, a second comment. On a positive note, George and his old mate, Gerard Richdale, are back under the same roof again. Amazing, when they lived together in Ballarat, George had no idea, no idea, his mate father, Gerard, was a serial pedophile. No connection, but we gain new respect for the credibility of Sydney shock jock Alan Court in the John's deeply researched opinions after he accused people of misinterpreting his comments that Big Supremo scuttle them should stick a sock down New Zealand Big Supremo Jacinta Ardern's throat. Yes, yes, how were you misinterpreted, Alan? They quoted what I said word for word. So it's quite possible Alan was also misinterpreted after he said former True Blue Aussie Big Supremo Julia Gallinghart should be stuffed in a sack, taken out to sea and thrown overboard. In fact, by quoting him word for word, we've been misinterpreting poor Alan for years on everything. Thank goodness we don't have to misinterpret the great truths brought to us by Lord Rupert of Wapping. For instance, if it wasn't for Lord Rupert, we wouldn't know the depths to which dull budgers sink. Afraid of hard work, the headline screamed. Farmhand experiments shunned by jobless. See, this scheme allowing young doll bludgers to earn up to 5000 a year over and above their public handout, on which they whoop it up, if they work on farms and agriculture, picking stuff, planting stuff, canning and packaging stuff, and only 400 applied when there were 7,600 placements, and they could also get an additional fabulous $300 travel and living away allowance if prepared to travel more than 120k to work, which would go ahead hell of a long way. Naturally, Lord Rupert's whopping sin decried this display of obvious sloth. Go on whooping it up on their public handout, but we do have to wonder, listener, why young people wouldn't want to go and work in agribusinesses when we hear such glowing reports about their working conditions. Why they would be afraid of hard work. Lord Rupert quoted a Queensland carrot farmer who bemoaned he had to employ overseas workers because locals don't want to do the work. Can't understand why not. And the Minister for Starve the Poor, Michaelia Koch, the workers, also decried the, the sloth of pludging youth. And the head of Agri, uh, Ag Force couldn't understand why it was difficult to attract workers. We are surprised and disappointed that the trial has not been a success because agriculture is a dynamic, exciting, innovative and well-paying industry. Makes us even more critical of those young doll budgers, doesn't it? Unless he meant well-paying for his members at AgriForce. No, no, Lord Rupert's correct. They're just afraid of hard work. At least he admits for his own purposes that it is hard work. And the caring Ag Force employers wouldn't dream of exploiting young unemployed workers. Presumably the overseas workers are the Pacific Islanders whom our Deputy Big Supremo Michael McComick says can come here and work while their homes are sinking into the briny. And it might have helped if he'd explained just a bit how that was going to do anything about them not sinking into the briny. Finally, spare a thought yet again for poor, besieged, exploited, caring employers.
The federal court ruled last week that lazy, avaricious workers who work longer hours than normal, personal leave like sick leave, should be paid on the number of hours they actually work rather than the basic hours. And poor, caring employers say this will cost them a fortune, including in back pay, which the court ordered. Our old mate in us will cost workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, which represented the caring employer in this case, could, could hardly speak. The decision is inconsistent with the widespread industry practice, he gasps, uh, which is in us to rip them off. Surely they must have consulted the workers about the industry practice of not paying them. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and as usual at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning City Limits with Kevin and friends. What follows is an edited version of last Sunday's Latin American program here on 3CR and the speaker is Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of the Latin American Institute at La Trobe University. It's clear that there is an absolute and utter crisis going on in Brazil. I mean, to put it in a headline, the Amazon's burning. This is an issue that has ramifications for all of us. If you care about, well, anything, you'll care about this. Because basically what's happening in Brazil is an out-of-control obsession with development in the Amazonian region that actually will have ramifications for everyone and every creature and plant on this planet. This is, I would argue, an emergency crisis of the first order because really what's threatened here is life on Earth. That's a pretty big statement, but we'll look at this in more depth. I'm going to really take today's program to look at the problem, the history of the problem, what's actually going on, and maybe, maybe some solutions. Because there is hope, but the hope has to come, I think, with everyone in the world, the global community, acting to convince Brazil, and we're talking here particularly this rather, what can I say about the current president, his name's Jair Bolsonaro, uh, he has a lot of nicknames. One good one, of course, is Bozo Naru. But uh, really, in many ways, uh, to describe him, I think, really, as a sort of tropo Trump. Donald Trump on steroids is, not, is quite accurate in some ways. But the point of the serious issue is, besides the comedic aspects of people like this, is that in the Brazilian case, he really can do serious damage to our world our planet. I'm going to explain about this, but there's a long history to it. It's not just one guy coming out of the um, of nowhere and uh, doing this. It's actually a culmination of a really uh, quite a long period of how the Amazon has been seen by various elites and various international groups around the world. So today it's the Amazon's burning. What the hell are we going to do about this and what's it all about? And I must say, as um, a historian of Brazil, I see this really as, as my duty to really talk about this today at some depth. But let me start with, I mean, the basic issue really is that 
I mean, you don't have to be a Nobel-winning scientist to understand what photosynthesis is. Photosynthesis is basically how plants operate by actually absorbing carbon dioxide, basically creating their own carbohydrates and releasing oxygen. Yes, oxygen. It's estimated that the Amazonian rainforest probably provides about 20% of the oxygen uh, that's being recycled. But also, in many ways, it's, of course, sinking or taking in much of the carbon that's been generated, particularly over the last 250 years by the Industrial Revolution. Now, these people who deny climate change are really, I mean, they're, well, they're apologists for uh, industry. What this is really about is that, sure, over the millennia, there has been climate change, and we can see this with ice ages, etc., But in no other time in history has there been such an intensive release of carbon due to fossil fuel burning. First of all, of course, if you look at the uh, Britain, for example, it was clearly burning wood. Then, of course, the first industrial revolution, which was based on the burning of coal, which continues today. Then, of course, oil's discovered in the late 19th century. So we've got this whole, well, wealth for certain parts of the world generated by fossil fuel burning. Now, this fossil fuel burning, the carbon's got to go somewhere. It goes into the atmosphere. The very least, the Amazon can't solve this. We have to, of course, clearly reduce our carbon emissions. But the point with the Amazon is that the Amazon, by absorbing large amounts of carbon dioxide, gives us a chance to change our evil ways, if you want to put it that way quote Santana. The point here is that what we've got to do is take advantage of that and clearly change the way we generate energy uh, in this on our planet. However, if Bolsonaro continues to destroy the Amazon, time periods, things like the Paris Agreement, which you know, calls for you know, reductions in one or two degrees over certain periods, this is going out the window because with the rapid destruction of the Amazon, we have less and less time because there is less and less foliage plant life on Earth. The Amazon is the largest rainforest in the world. This is putting aside all the issues of the rights of the indigenous people there, which of course are are put to the side, but Australia can't point the finger there because we've done it for years as well. But I want to talk more here about the science in the issue. And we're going to talk also about the history of Brazil's attitude to the Amazon, because this is a key to what we really see as the problem. I really would love to end this show, and I will at the end, with some solutions. They're not easy solutions, but we have to have hope. And I think... We need to really think laterally about this problem. But some history. I think it's important uh, to put everything here in some sort of historical context because I don't. What we don't want to do, I think, is blame the Brazilian people for this uh, this uh, potential utter catastrophe, because there's a history to it, and I think that it's understandable in some ways. But doesn't mean it's acceptable. Now. Amazonia, I mean, we can go back, uh, clearly it's been inhabited for about 10, 15,000 years from what we, uh, what we know. In the modern era, its first integration, if you like, into world capitalism and world networks was one that was 
on one level unpleasant and in terms of exploitative, but on another level it was a rather natural. This is the great rubber boom of the mid to late, late 19th to early 20th century. Now, rubber is an indigenous plant in Amazonia, and the Brazilian government, and when, when industrialization moved to the issue of being able to vulcanize rubber, pneumatic tires, that rise in the 19th century, people like Goodyear and Dunlop created a market for rubber to be used um, in, in an industrial way. The indigenous people of Amazonia had used rubber for thousands of years for all sorts of purposes of waterproofing, etc. But when rubber could be made harder, etc., it became a potential industrial product. Now, the rubber boom in Amazonia in the um, 1880s and 90s through to, to, um, into the early 20th century was done by, by ex- admittedly exploited rubber tappers, but with where the plants, where the trees were throughout the forest. So there was no cutting down, no destruction. It was basically tapping native trees and bringing the rubber back for processing and export. Again, I'm not condoning that industry. A lot of people made a lot of money out of it, and that certainly weren't the rubber tappers, I can assure you. These people became known as the rubber barons, and they built a magnificent opera house in Manaus, a thousand miles up the river in, um, in Amazonia. But, however, of course, the whole industry collapsed in the early 20th century because the British uh, stole the rubber plant, uh, rubber seeds, took them to Kew, Kew Gardens, that is, in London, uh, developed them and sent them out to Malaya and set up the uh, neatly plantation systems in Malaya. However, the idea that Amazonia could be a source of wealth to Brazil stuck within the minds of the Brazilian governments that followed. In 1889, of course, there was a military coup against the emperor, Brazil, of course, was a monarchy from 1822 to 1889. It was seen as old-fashioned by certain military people, positivists within the Brazilian military, and they overthrew the emperor and sent him off to Paris to exile. But this, the idea within the Brazilian military was one of modernization and development. This is in the 1890s and, of course, subsequently. The idea that a large country like Brazil was destined for great things. What they saw clearly uh, looking north was another very large nation. And this nation, of course, was the United States, born 1776. But, of course, throughout the 19th century, the story of the United States was one of exploiting its natural resources. The go-west young man. That the interior of the United States was seen as a source of wealth. And as the 19th century progressed, the U.S. moves from east to west, and that middle, period, that middle area, of course, is turned into farms. Great areas of uh, the prairies are uh, basically stripped of the people who live there because they were not empty. They were basically indigenous North Americans who were put on reservations or murdered, and basically the U.S. moved west. Now... The, U- the Brazilians could always see that this great republic of the north, and Brazil was now a republic, was turning into a major power. And how did they do it? They exploited their territory. 
didn't matter about the people who suffered, it mattered what the land could be turned into to make profits. So Brazilians in the back of their mind, their interior was a bit different. It wasn't clearly the prairies and the lands of the Midwest which could be cultivated for um, uh, agribusiness, if you like, and cattle, etc., but the problem, Brazil's problem, was that their interior really was this incredible rainforest and not so easy to exploit. But the dream to exploit it had always been there. Moving into the 20th century, the idea was, the symbol of this was that the capital of Brazil, there was this saying in Brazil, there was a nation of crabs, meaning everyone lives on the coast, a bit like Australia. The interior empty, time to move in. And this was symbolised by the building of a capital city that became ultimately Brasilia, which was not in the Amazon, but getting pointing to the Amazon. So it's inland, it's actually was built in the middle of nowhere. This comes to fruition basically in the 1950s Kubitschek government, which was based on the, the theory of desinvolvimento ismo, which, which basically meant developmentism. By not only industrialising, but moving into the interior of Brazil was this, this um, mantra it became. Of course, in 1964, as we all know, the um, civilian government was overthrown by the Brazilian military, who, of course, made the march to the interior, if you like, um, again, a development mantra, particularly by building a highway, the Trans-Amazonian Highway, through there, but also encouraging industry and agribusiness to develop. And this is where the problem really starts getting nasty. This obsession I'm talking about of Brazil's idea of marching into the interior and using it, it was based, as I said, on the ideas that a nation could develop by exploiting its resources. The problem for Brazil was that, in fact, their interior was important or is important to the globe. They didn't understand that at the time when these ideas were coming through. But the Industrial Revolution, as I said, which really kicked off in 17, late 1700s, tack into the 20th century, it's full bore, it's a full oil economy, electricity generally generated by um, coal, etc. So this becomes a real issue. Now, what did Brazil want to do, these successive governments, particularly the military? What they wanted to do in Amazonia was this, the absolute worst possible scenario. They wanted to pull down the forest and create cattle ranches. This was, of course, to develop a major beef export industry, particularly hamburger meat to the republic in the big republic in the north, uh, a major industry of cattle. So this was basically clearing the forest, bringing in the beef cattle, and uh, really, I mean, you can see some sort of pictures, aerial pictures, you can see where clearly there's the jungle there and there's these you know, basically just flat paddocks as this expands. Now, all vegetarians don't get too smug because the other thing they were doing was pulling down the Amazon for soybean production. This, of course, has become a major export of Brazil, much of it, of course, going to China. Uh, and basically, again, soya being a quick turnover crop, but destroying long-living um, uh, rainforests to do that. But there's more. Logging. 
part of, and this is much of it illegal, by the way, logging was basically being carried out all over these areas and many ways encouraged by the government, well, if they could get some tax out of the, the legal logging, uh, because basically, again, that would clear the land and it could be opened up for cattle and uh, soy, etc. There were two other shocking uh, developments within Amazonia over these periods, uh, and one is, of course, mining. Amazonia is a, is a cornucopia of various mines, particularly gold. It's alluvial gold. But there's other, there's manganese, there is iron ore in the fringes of it, not right in the middle, but all over Amazonia there were mines opening up of various uh, in, uh, raw materials needed for production and encouraged by the government. Another one, and this is arguably one of the most interesting and controversial destructive forces in Amazonia, is dam building for hydroelectricity. Now, the irony of hydro is, of course, it is a non-carbon producing form of electricity generation, which, you know, is, oh, well, that's great. However... This was flooding massive areas. The most famous uh, controversial one, of course, was the Belumonchi Dam up in um, near um, in the indi- well, very major indigenous area of Shingu, the Shingu area. There were years and years of protest, and you know, even pop stars and Poppy and uh, Mick Jagger, I think, went there, and uh, Sting, Mr. Sting, was there, and I mean, good, well intentioned, and uh, you know, this delayed it for a few years. But the, ba- the dam was built. This flooded vast areas of first of all displacing indigenous people. Secondly, the dam may well be producing electricity in hydroelectric terms, but much of the um, there was a lot of methane production from the flooding the the natural vegetation, etc. But it's not a solution in many ways. I think really the the answer for all of us, I would argue, is solar or wind power. But anyway, the dams were being built. But what goes along with this is also a mentality, a mentality that this interior is there for exploitation. Now, the point is, the problem is, when you have a country like Brazil with dramatic differences in wealth, poor people go in there to make their fortune, I suppose you might say. And roads were being built, and people were moving into these mining towns, but also frontier towns, to try and get some land. And this is part of where... This Bolsonaro, who came to power only a year or so ago, basically won an election because the most popular politician in Brazil, Lula, was in prison, in prison for corruption. <laughs> I mean, if he's corrupt, I mean, pretty, pretty minor compared to most of the other, the other more entrenched politicians. But this is the problem. So we get a guy who promises the, the world, a Trump-type character. I see the rise of these type of people, Boris Johnson, etc., as really a breakdown in neoliberalism, because neoliberalism is not delivered for everyone. It's not delivering, and the people are desperate. They go to demagogic type of people who can't deliver what they're promising. But anyway, back to Brazil quickly. The solution. Well, clearly, this the burning has become, I think, in many ways, this burning phenomenon has brought this to a peak because people just have not been noticing what's going on there over the last 30, 40 years. With, but it's been accelerated by the encouragement of Bolsonaro saying, well, look, go up there, set a fire. You know, it's a season where they'll, they will burn. And this is a catastrophe that's accelerating us to seriously to doom. Is there a solution? Well, I would argue yes. Okay, 
Well, look, one solution is clearly to compensate Brazil for not pulling it down. This means that the world has to give them money to, to use for the sorts of goals that they want to use the money that they're pulling the Amazon down for. This would clearly develop at schools, hospitals, these sorts of... Uh, well, I'm not so sure they use it for that, but they, we, we, they have to. Stop pulling it down and compensating them. How do we do it? Seriously, you may laugh, but I believe that everyone in the world should have a, a sales tax, certainly in the developed countries, of a dollar on everything you buy that goes to Brazil to compensate them for pulling it down. I mean, it's in our interests. It's in our children's interests. Of course, we have to be sure, and this is the problem in Brazil, is corruption. I mean, when you, you have um, this is endemic, but not because Brazilians are, are like that. It's because of the development of hierarchy, patronage, oligarchy, etc. It's a historical problem, but we need to be sure that this money is going to save the Amazon, and of course this means the governance of Brazil really needs to be opened up and cleaned up. That's one way, and I think that would be a short-term method. The longer term, and this is my dream in many ways to save it, is that Amazon, the Amazon forest is turned into what we call a pharmaceutical botanical garden. Now, this would mean can't pull it down, can't touch it, but what you can do is research the plants within it. The biodiversity there is unbelievable. There are plants in there that can really save many people. I mean, for, for um, I'm not saying necessarily big pharma here, but we're looking here at chemicals um, and pharmaceuticals that could basically be used for the good, the good of animals, the good of humans, the good of everything. This is an amazing laboratory and it's not to be pulled down. Of course, it's to be looked at and used as a research facility and preserved. But all I can say basically is if something's not done, really, this is the end. And I know that sounds alarmist, but we ain't got long. You've been listening to Dr. Ralph Newmark, the director of the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University, and that was some um, unedited version of the Latin American program here on Sunday, last Sunday at 10.30, and it's a program you should be listening to every Sunday morning at 10.30. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. We are the indigenous peoples of our motherland, Bougainville. We also have to decide our future, our destiny. No outsiders can decide for us. These are the words of John Momus, President of the Autonomous Region of Bougainville. Bougainville creates history by being the first province of PNG where a referendum will be held for the people to consider independence. And it was also host to one of the first world-class copper and gold mines to be built and operated during the colonial period right up until after independence in PNG and it is the only autonomous government in the country and the only province to suffer a civil war. After being delayed twice this year, the Bougainville referendum is now due to be held in late November. I spoke with Luke Fletcher from Jubilee Australia, a non-government organisation 
which engages in research and advocacy to promote economic justice for communities in the Asia-Pacific region and accountability for Australian corporations and government agencies working there. Look, the delays in the date for the referendum from June to October and now the end of November. Are you aware that the reasons given are valid? There's no hidden agenda? Well, I suppose there could be a hidden agenda, but um, it does seem as though the, the country is not prepared. And, you know, the, um, the commissioner, Bertie Ahern, who it, it was he really seems like he was very much in favour of delaying the referendum because, just, you know, according to his comments, it just well, the country just wasn't ready. So um, I think we can probably assume that, the, you know, if we take those that on face value, there's, there's probably good reason for it. I mean, there... Uh, it's impossible to know. There, there, there might also, as you say, there might also be a hidden agenda, but um, it seems as though it's, it, it's probably likely to be just, you know, lack of preparedness. Would they have had adequate resources to get all the people on the roll? That's what's been. That's one of the reasons that's been cited is for the delay that they just haven't haven't got enough, um, haven't had had enough time in organisation and finances. And there was a question of there, there were some comments about. Financial transfers and PNG being responsible for the delays, I mean, that may have been a factor as well. And where does the money come from t- to organise this? A lot of it does come from Papua New Guinea. I mean, even Bougainville's government is, 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 is uh, highly dependent on PNG aid anyway. So, you know, ultimately I think it's the transfers and PNG make up the, the vast majority of, of government revenues. So uh, I think with the, re- with the referendum there's probably aid money coming from other countries as well. What's Australia's input? Look, Australia, not 100% sure about this, but I, I would imagine that Australia is supporting it through its aid program. I mean, Australia has a lot of different programs in Bougainville, so I would, would probably assume that part of that is, is, is uh, support for the referendum. Will there be just one question on the, on the poll paper? I, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, there, there was talk that there was going to be. There, there's been a lot of debate about it, but I think I think yes, I think it probably is one. Um, but um, I'd have to get back to you on that one. What's the significance of the recent announcement that the ex-combatants are reconciled? And perhaps I should ask you first how they became not reconciled. Ever, ever since the civil war ended, the ex-combatants. My understanding is they broke up into into these, or maybe it was even during the civil war, broke up into these factions. And as you know, often happens with different sort of groups, political groups. The, the significance is is that they've all got together and, and essentially decided that they they're not going to oppose the referendum, which is really important because there was talk of that. And secondly, that the ex-combatants decided that they wanted to stop any talk of mining and especially around Panguna question, but just sort of mining in general, including changing the mining laws until after the referendum because it was perceived to be divisive. So that's really important because what it's done is, you know, the government was trying to push through these mining laws, a change of the Mining Act, and was also there was sort of various jockeying from various players to try and get a, a lease for... And all of that's now been put on the back burner until uh, at least until after November. So that's very significant for Bougainville. Is it a fact, though, that a couple of the Makamui groups who are from around the area of Panguna still haven't joined that reconciliation? Well, my understanding is that, that Makamui is, is, 
is largely on board with that. And what's happened with the relinquishing of weapons? They have, I think, agreed, McMurray have agreed to cooperate in that, in that process as well, which is also important. Can you talk a bit more about the multinational mining companies and the, and the changes or the proposed changes to the mining laws? Well, there's sort of two separate things, but there are about four different companies that are sort of jockeying for control of Panguna's resources. There's the sort of incumbent, if you like, which is Bougainville Copper Limited, which was involved with, with Rio Tinto in the first iteration of the, of the Panguna mine. And then there's a group called RTG, which also has ties to Australia, and and then there's another group called the Kabulis Mining, which is the new sort of player, one of the new players on the scene, which um, again has ties to Australia in, in Western Australia. And then the fourth group is Kalia Resources, which is also a West Australian group, which has leases in the north part of Bangalore, not in Panguna. So there are these four different companies and um, three of them are trying to get control of Panguna and they are largely sort of allied with different landowner groupings in Panguna. In terms of the Mining Act, the Kabulis group, which is the new player in town, seemed to sort of strike an agreement with the ABG, the Autonomous Bougainville Government, to push forward this new proposal to completely water down the, the mining laws and, and essentially invalidate the role of the landowners in giving consent giving consent for mining concessions. If that act had been passed, it looks as though Caboose would have been sort of given control over most of the resources on Bougainville. But that act looks to now be mothballed until at least after the referendum. So that particular push has been halted for the moment. So do you believe the mining companies are would be happy with a, a yes vote or a no vote? That's a good question. I don't think it matters to them so long as they get their, their concessions. That's what they really want. I would imagine they're planning for both contingencies. And what about the PNG government? Are they going to be happy with a, a yes vote? We're going to be independent? The new Prime Minister, James Marape, has said that he won't stand in the way of independence if Bougainville is, uh, votes that way. Uh, however, he has indicated his wish that Bougainville remain within PNG and one would imagine that the PNG political class would be quite actually nervous about an independence vote for the reason that it could spark other separatist movements um, in other parts of PNG, particularly in the islands, regions of PNG. So um, I, I would imagine that they'd be much, much prefer Bougainville to stay inside PNG despite the sort of headaches of the Bougainville problem. In a sense, is it a fait accompli that whether the vote goes yes or no, there's going to be mining? Or could there be the other developments that people see that aren't mining? We, we don't think it's a fait accompli at all. I mean, certainly there are a lot of people making the argument that Bougainville needs mining for its, its economic development. You know, we've questioned that in our... 2018 report, Growing Bougainville's Future, which is a long investigation into that very question. And so, um, you know, also when it comes to Panguna, um, which is the main the main mineral deposit 
on the island because there's such division within the landowners. Um, it's it's not clear that it's going to be practical to go ahead anyway, and and, and you know unless there's a, you know the landowners actually come come together and decide to get behind one particular project, it's it's hard to see it happening there. But just in terms of the larger question, the, I guess the point that Jubilee has been raising is if you look at PNG, it, it has really not done well out of its many mining projects for decades. You know, the, the, the time it's going to take to get a project up and running and the, the, the capital costs it's going to cost, the, the revenues to to even an independent or an, a Bougainville or a province of PNG um, are likely to be probably smaller than a lot of people are claiming and so there's really just question marks about whether it's going to be economically viable not to say that um, there aren't a lot of tough choices for Bougainville moving forward with its development but um, yeah it's an open question I'd say whether mining happens or not And still no talk of compensation for the people for loss of life and loss of environment and also the clean up The clean up is an important question and I think it's really important for supporters of Bougainville both you know, internationally to keep pressing for that, especially at an international level. You know, the, in fact, the environmental problems at the mine site and the tailings have probably gotten worse over the three decades rather than better. So I think the clean-up is absolutely something that should be continued to be talked about. Uh, in terms of the reparations for the human rights violations that occurred, especially in the early years of the war, that's probably going to be more practically difficult to affect because you'd affect it, you'd probably need something to happen in a court of law and there's just challenges that are involved in bringing a case like that um, to to trial either in PNG or, or somewhere else so that's that's a hard, that's a tough enough to crack but I think that the clean up issue should very much remain on the agenda what has jubilee identified as the alternatives to mining Bougainville is actually a very rich agricultural country it has you know, a lot of expertise in things like cocoa and um, coconut um, and, and copra products. And then there's, you know, there's fisheries and there's tourism and, and that sort of thing. So but these things really need to be developed. And um, there are other potentials for sort of high-end crops and um, that, that could be developed. But it's going to take time and it's going to take a real concerted effort. So, if you, you know, if, if listeners wanted to read more about that, I would definitely recommend looking at our report, Growing Bougainville's Future, which is on our website. So it's still another four months before the referendum vote? That's right, yep, four more months. What do you believe that will be happening in those four months? Is there more negotiations to happen? There'll just be a lot more focus in the coming, in the upcoming time on, on the referendum itself, on in getting people enrolled, on um, yeah, just discussions of, and preparations for that. I think that'll be the main focus. In all the talks and all the what's been written about this, there hasn't seemed to be a, a woman's voice. That's an important point on Bougainville, you know, especially given that it's a matrilineal society. It's a shame that women's voices have been... I mean, women were very involved in brokering the peace process. For example, the, the matrilineal nature of Bougainville society, um, where women are the, the ones who sort of um, ownership of land is passed down, makes their role culturally very important but politically they have been sort of marginalised by the men especially in recent years especially you know and that was process really started with colonisation I mean we work with a very strong female Bougainvillian who spent years in Australia is now back in Bougainville um, Dr Ruth Savannah 
Uh, and there are other really uh, amazing women on Bougainville doing really important work, although their, their profiles tend to be not as high. So, um, you know, and there are about four, I think, Bougainville women in the ABG in the parliament. So there has been some progress, but um, it really is important to, I think, to try and uh, encourage these women leaders because that's, that can only be good for the country. Are there many Bougainvilleans living in Australia who are eligible to vote? I mean, there's a decent diaspora in Australia. The, the question of who can and can't vote has been has been one that's been um, talked about. Both, you know, you know, can people in PN, who, who are from PNG living in Bougainville vote? And my understanding, and I'm, but I'm, as I said, I'm not an expert on on the election questions. Um, but my understanding is that the diaspora would be able to vote, but I'm absolutely not 100% sure on that, so please don't <laughs> take my word for it. Okay, thank you, Luke. Thanks very much, Jen. And that's Luke Fletcher from Jubilee Australia. And do have a look at their website to find out more about the prospects for development by the people of Bougainville, not by the multinationals who want their own way on Bougainville. It's 4.47 and you're listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Welcome back to Tuesday Home Time to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association from a well-deserved holiday. Kate, last time we spoke it was to celebrate the fact that Nasia El-Khalidi, the Sahrawi journalist facing up to 15 years jail for her work as a journalist, was instead fined the equivalent of 375 euros. But as you pointed out at that time, she is since then a marked woman. What I'd like you to talk about are the two joint communications issued by the UN Special Procedures relating to recent discussions rendered by the UN Human Rights Mechanisms and they relate to both Nasia and also Nadua Lusuri, another journalist from Western Sahara. The United Nations has different mechanisms for addressing some of the issues that have been arising, particularly with journalists lately, the way in which the Moroccan authorities have treated them. As we heard on a previous occasion, Naza El-Khalidi was at least spared a prison sentence, but she was fined. Prior to that, another journalist called Nadour Laroussi, was also fined, a heftier fine, than I might say, than Nazir al-Khalidi. These different aspects of the human rights organisations within the UN have been addressing these issues. One of them is a UN working group on arbitrary detention Then they have these special rapporteurs who have very specified 
areas of concern. One of them is for the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression, clearly relevant to the journalists. The rapporteur on torture and other cruel and inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. That rapporteur has also been enlisted to investigate what has happened to some of the other Sahrawi prisoners of opinion in Morocco. And they have all been calling for Morocco to ease up and allow these people to express opinions freely and without being uh, hindered all the time by these court cases and interrogations and sometimes under torture and then fines to try and intimidate them and prevent their work. Uh, as we know, um, Nasha Khalidi, she works for the Equipe Media, the media team, who work in several languages, whereas La Russie, he works for an organization called Bentili Media. Both of them are trying to draw attention to the way in which Saharawis are also having their freedom of expression interfered with because as soon as they go out on the streets and call for whatever it is, the right to self-determination in particular is, is a likely thing that they'll be calling for, they will be arrested and beaten, generally hounded off the streets. A lot of the work of these journalists is simply to try and give a megaphone to these demonstrators who are in the street and who only get about one sentence out before they are sent home. They want everybody to know what is going on and how Morocco is, is not doing its duty, which was to allow a referendum of self-determination. And, of course, Morocco is part of the, the UN and is supposed to adhere to the various aspects of the UN, but doesn't do it in relation to Western Sahara. No, exactly. I mean, they, they like to put forward the idea that they're a liberal democracy and they have parliamentary rule and all these things. But we all know that, that a lot of that is window dressing and they do pass some legislation, but it never gets enacted or it is given some kind of presence, but then it's given no teeth to do the work. And this is a common story. In fact, there's been an article recently by a guy who is a, a former journalist who is now working for Human Rights Watch, Ben Shemzi, his name is Ahmed Ben Shemzi, has, has written about the failure of Morocco to enact all of its things. It's, this year, the king celebrated 20 years on the throne. He always gives an enthronement speech, but th this year it was 20 years and the human rights people put out this article called Morocco, the Kingdom of Unfinished Reforms. That's what's been uh, happening, that they've, they've tried to sort of sidestep the Arab Spring, for example, by saying they were going to make it much more democratic, but when it comes down to it, the king is really still an absolute monarch. He 
allows them to vote for for their parliament, but then he appoints the people from the winning party. So that there is a kind of a, a little element of popular vote there that there's a winning party, but the king actually makes the appointments and he can withdraw their their appoint, appointment at any time. If they don't toe, toe the line, out they go. You couldn't really call that a liberal democracy. And not only the parties towing the line, but the people towing the line as well. Oh yes, exactly. And the last few years, the last couple of years, it's not just the Saharawis who've been having a very hard time. It's also activists in the area called the Rif. That, that they've never been very compliant. It's not really in their character to be compliant with the regime. And, but they've been a lot more vocal lately. And so they, they, anybody who reports on that, who uh, supports them and their claims, will also get a rough time. Moroccan journalists have been also given hefty fines or imprisoned or whatever for reporting about the RIF. Looking at a, a cup match, a soccer match, it would appear that celebrating a win in the African Cup of Nations can be very deadly. Exactly. Well, they would. Uh, I think they were allowed to watch the match, but when they came out to celebrate because they were so excited when Algeria won. And this is in Western Sahara. This is in Western Sahara, but they are well aware that Algeria is a friend of the Saharawis, that it has been hosting the refugee camps for uh, 40 years plus. They were very excited when, when, it, when Algeria won, and so they wanted to get out in the street and celebrate. Uh, of course, they did then continue their celebrations with waving Saharawi flags, which are very uh, provocative for the Moroccan authorities and they do know that but you still might not expect the kind of heavy-handed response that was dealt out. Fortunately until now fairly unusual crowd control of actually uh, charging crowds with police vehicles but there was one young woman who I think was not actually part of the crowd. I haven't been able to ascertain the full story, but I think she was just crossing from her pa- place of work to go home. And the, uh, a vehicle mowed into her, knocked her over, and another one came while she was on the ground and then ran over her. Unfortunately, she died. And as you say, that uh, then turned into a very deadly occasion, really uncalled for and definitely Morocco needs to be called to account for that kind of police behaviour. Well, there are two investigations going forward on that, one by Amnesty International and one by international trade unions. Yes, you know, good luck to them. I mean, Amnesty have definitely responded to the uh, brutal crackdown that Saharawi suffered uh, on that occasion. The trade unions are never popular in Morocco either, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's very somebody needs to do this work. Hopefully they've got standing around the world, and that, like the human rights organisations, and they will 
in their way, bring pressure on the Moroccan authorities to behave themselves, I suppose one could say. Very difficult to monitor human rights in a country where those sort of organisations are banned? That's right, and, and, and when there are trials for these people, there are arrests and there are trials, international observers would like to come and, and make sure that due process is, 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 carry, is, is being seen to happen, and they get turned back. Just the latest one was uh, Cristina Martinez, who, a lawyer from Spain, who wanted to come and observe the trial of nine young people who were arrested on the occasion of the football celebration. For the second time in her experience, she was turned back at the airport and not allowed to observe the trial. And I'd imagine that those young people have been bashed and and many of the others that were at that demonstration would have injuries. What's the treatment, the hospital treatment for people? Are the hospitals controlled by Morocco if they do go to a hospital? It's quite frequent for Sahrawis to prefer to go home and have whatever kind of uh, homemade remedy that can be administered in preference to going to hospital because the hospitals will sometimes turn them away or they will kind of delay treatment and they won't give the proper treatment. And so people have been certainly uh, very hard done by by going to hospital. Well, from Western Sahara to New Zealand, and once again, New Zealand's been accused of complicity in Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara. And this relates to a Moroccan bulk carrier, which was tracked and it's now in New Zealand. It's got phosphate and they've proved that the phosphate came from Western Sahara, not Morocco. Exactly. And and it it does tend to get uh, called from uh, Morocco but that's only because they, uh, you know, that, that, that's part of their presumptive ownership of Western Sahara. They don't, uh, of course, and they are not even officially an administering power because they, they haven't got the right uh, to do that. And in law, Spain is still the administering power. It wasn't able to um, give up its... Uh, that responsibility. The phosphate imports are continuing to New Zealand. There's two companies there which are importing. One's called Ravensdown and the other one's called Balance Agri-Nutrients. The latest shipment was coming to Ravensdown and that's just been coming in this week. And there's an article in the New Zealand Herald about it. It's called The Amoy Dream and it was arriving on the 26th of August in the port of Napier. You know, once again, they are sort of pleading with Jacinda Ardern to intervene and explain to the companies that they should not be importing from a a non-self-governing territory, which is what Western Sahara officially is. They shouldn't be importing from Morocco because if Morocco is selling it, it's stolen goods. And Jacinta Dern is well versed in what's been happening in Western Sahara. 
Well, she is because when she was a student, she she went there. She went to the uh, refugee camps, and she won't have forgotten that. She might be slightly rusty on some of the details, maybe, because she's obviously got a lot coming across her desk every day. But they are trying to remind her about that, and I'm sure she'll remember. It may be difficult for her to know exactly how to handle it because farming is definitely a very central activity for New Zealand and a really crucial part of their economy. does put the politicians in a difficult position to know how to encourage the farmers to get their phosphate from a different source. But all the other countries have been able to do that. Including Australia. Including Australia and including uh, the last big ones from Canada, Agrium and uh, Potash Corp. So, yeah, it, 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 it should be possible. There was a huge series of articles, very extensive and, and, and deeply researched by the online New Zealand uh, publication called Stuff, stuff.co.nz, I think it is, you know, talked about some of the problems that are environmental problems that arise from actually using too much phosphate and they were arguing that you could, the farmers should really be able to manage with far less than is actually than is used they do seem to feel they need to boost the production of the pasture for the uh, stock that they run and maybe they use it also for grain and other crops but it should be possible to manage, to, to get good results with, with less phosphate. Now, we have a special visitor coming to Melbourne and Sydney next month. Yes. Well, her name is uh, Tekba Ahmed Salah, and she's a young Sahrawi woman who works in the Sahrawi government at the, in the refugee camps in southwestern Algeria. And she did studies in uh, Scandinavia, where I think she also learned good English. She was working particularly on water and water quality and that kind of uh, thing. So she'll have a very interesting perspective on how the camps run and how it all works. She's coming to Melbourne in the... uh, in the week beginning the uh, 19th of, or 18th or 19th of September. But you can have a little preview if you want on, uh, which is I think next Monday, the 2nd of September, she will be interviewed by Philip Adams on Late Night Live. And so if you want to, you can tune in to Radio National. As for what we're doing, also Victoria are doing, there will be a a day in Ballarat where she will be hosted by the Rural Australians for Refugees at the Trace Hall Uh, yes in the Ballarat Trace Hall of course that is on Tuesday there'll be a a dinner a welcome dinner which is being held in the Fitzroy Arms and there's a try booking link to book for that dinner and the other main public event for her in Melbourne is a seminar at the Institute of Postcolonial Studies 
It's, going to, it's called Calling for Rights and Recognition. It'll be chaired by Julie Dan from the Latrobe Law School. Speakers as well as Tekba include uh, Kamal Fadel, the Sahrawi representative to Australia, and Randy Irwin, who has recently presented her PhD on Western Sahara in New York. At 7.30 at the Postcolonial Studies Institute, which is 78 to 80 Curzon Street, North Melbourne. Uh, the Tri Booking is a link is tribooking.com caps B E M L A slash B E M L A that will take you to that uh, that event, the welcome dinner in the North Fitzroy Arms at 6.30 on Tuesday the 10th of September. And thanks to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. I'll give you that try booking again. It's trybooking.com slash capitals B-E-M-L-A. I'm speaking with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. A sad passing recently of a woman that many of, a couple of generations would have known, Margaret Fulton. One of our most valued um, writers and activists um, who supported gene ethics and GM-free foods. During the 2000s, Margaret was very active and um, supported the True Food Guide and was featured in gene ethics postcards, which we used as a lobbying tool as well. And I guess um, Margaret's position on genetically manipulated foods is pretty much summed up by her statement to us that we put on the postcards, quoting her, GM foods are against everything I stand for. It's hard to imagine anyone giving a a stronger statement, particularly one in her high-profile position. We're very grateful for that and regret her passing. What were the influences on her? I'd imagine that there wasn't too many people early on who took that line. No, there hadn't been, particularly people in her sort of position where they had a reputation at stake. So uh, she was just a fearless advocate for what she believed in all her life, I think. Wrote and spoke and was a witness to uh, the need for good food and for Australian families to look after their diet and their health. Really a bit sad now that we've got this junk food culture and a huge obesity problem in Australia as well. It's the kind of thing that uh, Margaret would cringe at. Now we're looking at GM status of a couple of states. One is positive and the other negative. Oh well, I'd say um, positive certainly. Tasmania um, has um, extended its ban on the growing of commercial genetically engineered crops for another 10 years until 2029. They clearly recognise the great merit in being GM free as a a way of advocating for their um, primary produce in both local and global markets. And so being GM-free is one of the ways that they badge their products and uh, get the premiums for them. In contrast to that, the South Australian government has begun a process of deregulating genetic manipulation in their state, although it's far from over. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that um, South Australia has lifted its GM ban by any means, The government wants to bring in regulations, but they will have to go back to the parliament, and I think that the parliament will reject them. The parliament actually has a select committee 
still inquiring into the question of whether South Australia should stay GM-free. And the government, I think, to try and preempt the situation, has announced this process of further review, another six weeks of public comment and discussion, and then they will bring their deregulatory standards to the Parliament for debate. But I think that particularly the upper house of the Parliament, which before the last election extended South Australia GM-free until 2025, will stand up for the decision that they made and that uh, South Australia will also uh, not allow the growing of genetically manipulated canola on their territory either. The rather weird thing about the um, government's proposal is that they would exempt Kangaroo Island, which is an island just off uh, the south of South Australia, uh, from the lifting of the ban. So Kangaroo Island would remain GM-free as well because they market their GM-free products into Japan in particular, but also other parts of Asia at good premium prices as well. Now, surely if Kangaroo Island can do it, the rest of South Australia can do it as well. It just defies description, really, that um, the government could be so stupid in this case and not make every effort to capture the benefits of GM-free rather than putting their whole food industry and their farming industry at risk of contamination and, and being discredited for what is a very, very small part of their production. Canola, which farmers would have the choice to make GM, represents only 2% of all the revenue from South Australia's broadacre agriculture. So for 2% potential, they think it's going to be a gain. They're going to put 98% of their industry at risk of being discredited and of having a harder time in marketing their products. I would imagine that the award-winning wine industry in South Australia wouldn't be too happy about this move by the government. Well, the wine industry, like a lot of other industries, unfortunately is mixed and therefore an unreliable ally when it comes to GM-free because the science boffins within the grape-growing industry have actually in the past developed genetically manipulated grape vines. They've never been allowed to deploy them. So there's still within that grape growers and winemakers fraternity mixed views and as a result they haven't taken the strong position that we had hoped they would uh, in support of GM free. Other industries in a, are in a similarly divided situation. Take dairy for instance where the organic and biodynamic producers who are getting great premiums for their products are absolutely adamantly behind GM free while your mainstream dairy farmers who are having a very rough time are saying oh no we need genetically manipulated grass in order to increase our milk production it's weird but you're thinking about the export market where countries want green clean food and wine they won't be too happy surely well indeed uh, i mean the problem really for uh, any gm producer that wants to export so grain industry for instance or canola uh, going to Europe for instance they want GM free so Europe really is a market that um, pays a premium wants to know that it's getting GM free product China's another example China won't accept any food product that's 
not approved by either its own regulatory agencies or another regulator that it trusts. If we've got GM product coming in from Australia that's um, from canola, for instance, then China and Japan are going to start putting question marks up as well, particularly if they haven't approved the particular varieties that are on offer from Australia. So it does complicate and disrupt global trade and of course Australia is a great exporter of food and fibre products. Anything we can do to remain GM free and to be able to say that our products are squeaky clean is a plus both for access to markets and for prices. Well there is a um, moratorium on genetically manipulated canola and other crops until 2025 at the moment as far as the parliament is concerned but the government under pressure from Crop Life International which is trying to deregulate genetic engineering worldwide to say that they want to end the ban now and for that purpose they are bringing these new regulations before the parliament to try to convince parliament that uh, this deregulation would be a good idea. They commissioned a report which came out earlier in the year saying yeah, it won't be a problem to market our products and we've lost money because we haven't been G growing GM canola. This is the same uh, researcher who made fantastic projections about the gains for GM canola throughout Australia uh, in the early 2000s and was shown to be totally wrong in his projections. So I don't trust his figures any more now than I did then and I think we need to uh, take a very clear-eyed view that being GM-free is both a marketing and uh, a farm management and food, food industry management plus. Take the pluses and run with them, that's what we're saying to the government, and leave the genetically manipulated canola on the sideline where it, where it belongs. What's the Labor Party's reaction to this in South Australia? Because they're the ones that kept this moratorium going, wasn't it? And now we have a, liber a Liberal government. Yes, well, Labor looks like it's going to stand firm. It's waiting for the report of the Select Committee, which the Parliament set up uh, last year and is in the final stages of reporting to the Parliament. Uh, when the Parliament comes back, the Government is going to be trying for deregulation. Uh, the Select Committee will be reporting, and we think that their report will support a continuation of the uh, GM-free status of South Australia until 2025. And we are hopeful, confident, that the ALP will continue to go along with that. Their spokesperson has um, made positive noises about that, and we'll see how the debate plays out. What's happening with gene technology regulators? Things moving or not moving? Federally, they are moving. In fact, we're um, in that grey zone at the moment while the Parliament and the Senate are in recess. But when they come back on the 17th of September, there will be the debate of a, what's known as a disallowance motion. Several months ago, the federal government brought into the Parliament a new regulation which would uh, deregulate a lot of the new genetic manipulation techniques before they've even really got going. This is, again, part of crop life's global strategy to deregulate everywhere. The Greens, to their credit, have um, moved a disallowance of those regulations, and that will be debated on the 17th of September. So we're very much looking for community support for the Greens' disallowance motion.
which would say that the deregulation that the government's proposing can't happen because the new CRISPR genetic manipulation techniques pose many, many hazards. Uh, they have uh, off-target impacts, uh, the behaviour and makeup of the animals, plants and microorganisms that are created using these new methods is still very unclear. If these things are flying under the regulator's radar, as they would be if the deregulation proceeds, then we're going into a, we think, a very dangerous space where our food supply and our environment would be at risk. So we're hoping that that deregulation, with the support of your listeners and others, will go forward. And again, you're right, the ALP is the wild card here. We're asking the Federal Labor Party to get behind the disallowance to make sure that genetically manipulated methods and the products that they produce continue to be regulated. It's early days in the new so-called gene editing game and sidelining the regulator at this stage is just irresponsible. Well, if this position on labelling can go through, it makes a bit of a, a mockery of labelling. What can be done in other areas if um, organisations decide that we don't want labelling on our products as well? It could just escalate, surely. Well, the Food Standards Australia New Zealand, as a result of the deregulation that the government is now proposing, will also be moving to uh, not require any labelling on those animal, uh, microbial or plant products in the food supply. You're right, it would be a double whammy. These new organisms would not be regulated by the Office of Gene Technology Regulator. That would change the law because at the moment all... GM organisms require such regulation. Many of them would start to go unregulated and the regulator would not even be notified. The public would be left in the dark. As a result of that, as I mentioned, Food Stands Australia New Zealand is also considering what position it will take and that would probably preclude any of those organisms from any kind of labelling requirement. I mean, the labelling of GM foods at the moment is very weak anyway because the refined oils, starches and sugars which are the main products of genetic manipulation are allowed to come into our food supply without any labelling at all. What's happening with this CRISPR in other countries? This is just Australia and New Zealand. It's worldwide, isn't it, this new technology? It is worldwide and it's being used in, in laboratories everywhere and unfortunately the situation is that in other countries under the pressure of the GM industry, particularly represented by CropLife, which is um, in Australia, in Canberra, and also represented in 91 other countries. Uh, we've got pressure on politicians everywhere. So we just saw last month that um, Donald Trump ordered US government departments, particularly the US FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and the Agriculture Department, to prepare for the deregulation of many of the new GM techniques and their products there as well. And then, interestingly, the new Prime Minister of um, the UK, Boris Johnson, in his very first speech, advocated deregulating GM crops and introducing them into the UK, which until now has had a moratorium as well. We have Boris Johnson and Donald Trump both trumpeting the 
deregulatory tune put to them by CropLife, which represents the big seed and agrochemical companies worldwide, the people like Bayer and Monsanto, ChemChina, Dow and DuPont, are all um, pushing very hard for deregulation everywhere and really ignoring the fact that these new genetic manipulation techniques are generic, that they can be used to modify any living organism, including human beings as well as animals, plants and microorganisms. This deregulatory push uh, is putting the world into a much more dangerous space as far as these new life science technologies are concerned. So we could virtually look at any food product, could we, if this goes ahead? Well, we don't know yet how it's going to be used, uh, so it's, it's really hard to say, but I, I suspect that almost any organism that you can think of in the world is of some interest to somebody, particularly those high-volume grains and horticultural products that are the basis of a huge global trade. Agriculture Minister Bridget McKenzie, who is responsible for these deregulatory moves in the federal parliament, is uh, wanting to uh, create an industry in Australia that's worth $100 billion a year from particularly the export of food and fibre products. We're up around $70 billion at the moment in uh, total production, but uh, they want to go even harder on exploiting uh, Australia's very fragile soils and, and scarce water supplies in order to hit the $100 billion mark. It's a strange dream, and a lot of it's going to be based on spraying more chemicals more often and using genetic manipulation techniques to try to bolster production. You know, it's yield, yield, yield. That's what they're on about. Forget about quality or the state of our environment. They're on the back burner as far as our federal government and state governments too are concerned where um, agriculture is seen as the cash cow of the future if um, mining in particular goes into decline. But you can't have food production, etc., if you don't have water, and that's the problem. When you look at the, the, the drought situation around Australia, it's not looking bright. No, it isn't indeed, and I mean, the policies that are being implemented now are insane, really. I mean, we're allowing cotton, which incidentally is all genetically manipulated as well, to continue to be grown here. We've seen cotton growers stealing water in order to grow their thirsty crop, and now all along the Murray-Darling, um, government has been counselling irrigators to in nut trees, which are a huge demand on water. Even worse than cotton, aren't they? Worse than cotton. And it just defies belief that um, we're going down this dead end when regenerative agriculture systems are now being promoted and thought about and refined. The research and development money is going still in the industrial, high-input, chemical-based, GM-based agricultural direction as far as the governments are concerned. So you've got people like Grains Research and Development Corporation uh, spending those research and development dollars in the wrong direction instead of realising that we need to make the transition to new ecologically sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly systems for the future. Firstly, to feed Australians, not to create bulk commodities for export that are not value-added here that actually 
produce very little in the way of job or benefits for Australia. We need a whole new model and at the moment governments are resistant to these uh, new ideas. They're um, still enthralled to the, to the agrochemical companies and the seed companies in how we do uh, agriculture here. It is doomed, particularly in the face of global climate change. Explain the regenerative process. Well, regeneration is about those methods. Biodynamics would be one example of taking care of the organisms and soil because ultimately that's the fundamental of particularly plant production but also the health of animals that um, feed on the vegetation to produce meat, milk and eggs. It's going back to basics really and working in harmony with nature to use those scarce soil resources and we have rather poor soils on the whole in Australia and those scarce water resources to feed future generations as well as this one in a way that um, can be sustained and uses those resources which are regarded by industrial agriculture as simply resources to be mined where you lose topsoil every time you harvest a crop to one in which you actually build topsoils and you nurture the living matter that's in there. All right, Bob, what's on for the public to assist the Gene Ethics Network in the issues that are facing you at the moment? Uh, We need particularly support to tell the federal government to keep regulating the genetically manipulated crops in Australia, not deregulate them. You know, we've got a good system that works. We should keep on using it. The way that listeners could take action immediately is to go to the action page at the moment uh, with uh, the Friends of the Earth Emerging Technologies Project. If they Google stop the government deregulating WMDs, then they will find the right page. The reference to WMDs, of course, is weapons of mass destruction, and that's another use of uh, the new GM techniques that we haven't discussed. But Google stop the government deregulating WMDs. It will take any listener who's interested to the appropriate page where they will be able to send a message directly to their own Member of Parliament and to the Senators in this state to tell them, just back off, just leave our regulatory system alone, let's introduce the new GM techniques if they are going to be introduced in an orderly and precautionary way. That's the safest and best for the whole community. And I'll have to get on to Bob next month to talk about those weapons for mass destruction and the new technologies. Everything's frightening these days. But we've got to learn more about these things and not put our heads in the sand. 28 minutes past five. In the studio with me is journalist, researcher and author Nick McClelland, fresh back from the Pacific Islands Forum. And you'd like to focus on three issues, Nick. Yeah, look, I think one of the really interesting things was the level of popular support for the forum. As a journalist and as a political activist previously, I've attended a number of forums going back to the mid-1990s. The mood in this one was very different. You know, Tuvalu's a vulnerable, low-lying atoll nation. It's got about 11,000 people, and it's one of the the countries in the Pacific Islands that's feeling the 
the enormous effects, adverse effects of climate change. And so the government was very eager for people to tell that story. And it was astounding, the turnout of people, ordinary people, to support the government in that story. You know, earlier this year in May, the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, made a trip to the Pacific, and he visited Fiji, Vanuatu, New Zealand, and Tuvalu. First time ever a UN Secretary-General has has done such a tour in the Pacific Islands. Portuguese Prime Minister previously, looking for allies for the Climate Action Summit, which the UN Secretary-General will host in New York uh, in September, and sees the Pacific as allies. But speaking to the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, uh, Enele Sopoanga, he told me that, that Guterres was really touched by the reality of life in an atoll. And so, compared to last year in Nauru, where things were quite tense between the government and um, journalists because of the issue around refugees and Australia's detention centres, but the Nauruan people weren't particularly interested in what was going on, was my impression. Whereas it's the exact opposite. Just, I arrived a few days early before the rush, um, and wandering around, talking to people. I was wandering along, and this car started honking at me, and I was about to make a rude gesture, and then the window wound down, and it was the Prime Minister, and, you know, he was wandering around, talking to people, getting ready for the main event, hundreds of people arriving from all over the world. And it was a big thing. Tuvalu hasn't hosted a forum since 1984, so it's that 35 years. And the people of Tuvalu, not just the government, saw this as an opportunity to highlight the issue of climate change. And, you know, that was a really fundamental difference, I think, to previous meetings. And so you saw hundreds, literally hundreds of school students came out to dance and to perform when leaders were arriving from the 18 forum member countries. You had the most amazing scene at the airport where they'd converted the forecourt of Funafuti Airport by building a little island with huts and trees and so on and surrounding it by a moat of water. And as each leader arrived, they had to walk past this mock-up, this symbolic village on an island with water all around it, and the kids were in it, little four- and five-year-old kids were in the water waving the flag, and it was, you know, a pretty potent symbol. And some people walked past uncomfortably, others stopped. It it sort of symbolised this issue that from the youngest to the oldest in Tuvalu, people wanted to make a point that Tuvalu is vulnerable to cyclones, to sea level rise, to ocean acidification, to changes in water supply for agriculture. And um, they want action. They want urgent action, and they want it now. It was obvious that one forum member was standing in the way of that, and you don't win a prize for guessing who that was. He made a real fool of himself in one sense, didn't he? But he's also alienated virtually every country in the Pacific. Well, Scott Morrison had a really bad forum. It was interesting that um, he sent early the Minister for International Development in the Pacific, Alex Hawke. Alex Hawke is a member of Scott Morrison's faction of the New South Wales Liberal Party. He's in the prayer group with Morrison, the Pentecostal prayer group that they have uh, within the, within the, uh, the Australian Parliament. Um, and he was numbers man for the Morrison victory against both Turnbull and Dutton. So he was rewarded with the ministry... I think you could politely say that Alex Hawke is on a sharp learning curve about the Pacific. So the day before the forum, the host country, um, Tuvalu, and the Pacific Small Islands Developing States, PSIDs, the independent island states, held what they called the Saltalanga Climate Dialogue. It was a day-long event with speakers from scientists, uh, technicians, people from the Green Climate Fund, 
um, young people who are speaking about their concerns for what it's going to be like in 2050. It was a very powerful day. And the keynote speech, they invited Varenghi Bainimarama, the Fiji Prime Minister, to give the opening address. It was pretty symbolic because it's the first forum that Bainimarama's been at since 2007, ever since Fiji abrogated the constitution um, under the Bainimarama regime uh, after the coup. Fiji was suspended from the forum uh, and the Commonwealth. After elections in 2014, Fiji started to come back, sending ministers, uh, foreign minister and so on, to the, the forum, annual forum leaders meeting. It was the first time Bainimarama was there, and he was given the keynote speech. And talking directly to Alex Hawke, he, he gave a very measured speech. It was an interesting speech, saying, we recognise that your economy is different to ours. We recognise that your economy is based around coal, the export of fossil fuels, um, that you have to make a, a just transition in areas that are reliant on coal, in communities that are reliant on coal, coal-fired power stations, coal mining and so on. But you have, to, you have to understand our situation and you have to understand the existential threat that climate change brings to your Pacific neighbours. Very powerful speech. Morrison wasn't there. He came on the Wednesday, just the day before the retreat. So he flew in, you know, at the last minute to attend the one-day leaders' retreat where presidents and prime ministers go behind closed doors and talk to each other fairly frankly, one-on-one. Now, that's disrespectful for starters, isn't it? Well, these guys are politicians. They understand, you know, Scott Morrison's a very important person. and uh, uh, you know, well, He thinks he is. Um, he thinks he is. But he missed the first few days, and he missed the mood that was clear from most delegations that we're at a turning point, that by 2020, next year, um, countries have to step up what's called their NDCs, their Nationally Determined Contributions. So they have to set targets, stronger targets, more urgent targets for greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Next year, they have to start the process of ramping up the global target for climate finance. OECD, developed countries, and some larger developing countries like China and so on, have been making contributions to structures such as the Green Climate Fund, which is a global mechanism that provides money to developing countries. And the ambition for funding that body, there's what's called a replenishment round. They have to fill up the bucket again, replenish the bucket, starting from October. Um, So the next year or so, countries have to step up with more ambitious, more urgent, committed action. Now, we know that the government that's just been re-elected is arrogant and feels that it has a mandate to do the exact opposite, feels it has a mandate to open up new coal mines in the Galilee Basin, feels that it has a mandate to promote more coal-fired power, to increase exports of coal and other fossil fuels overseas. And so Australia is heading in a very different path to most other countries. And so, for example, on the Green Climate Fund, the United States is refusing to make another contribution to the Green Climate Fund in this replenishment round, other major powers are doubling their amount that they gave from last time. Germany's going to double its contribution. Um, Norway's going to double its contribution to 1.5 billion euros. Other European countries particularly, other developed countries, Korea and more, will be contributing. Australia has joined the United States in refusing to contribute to the Green Climate Fund, Um, and uh, that's noted by our Pacific neighbours. What was said by some of the other leaders in the Pacific? We've heard the leader of Fiji. He was very disparaging against... Before the forum leaders retreat, the time was very positive. The time was, let's work together. A number of people went on the record, though, asking 
calmly and clearly let Australia change its policies. I interviewed, for example, President Hilda Heine, President of the Marshall Islands, not one of Australia's closest allies, closest partners in the region. You know, we're very close, obviously, to Papua New Guinea, our former colonial possession, to Nauru, Vanuatu, Fiji, and so on. But the Marshall Islands, Australia really doesn't have strong trade, economic links, and so on. But Hilda Heine said very clearly she was dismayed and discouraged by Scott Morrison's attitude to, you know, not wanting to take more urgent action, called on the government to change its policy to commit funding to the Green Climate Fund. Um, She asked Australia not to expand coal mining explicitly. So even smaller countries like the Marshall Islands were speaking out very strongly. Um, So Bainirama was at the forefront of it. He's not scared of Australia. He's not scared of the Australian government, having survived more than a decade of them trying to sabotage his government. And so he was forthright. The host, Eneli Sopoanga, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu, was also very forthright. But um, Australia really misjudged the mood. And the biggest misjudgment of that was the big announceable. You know, every year Australia comes with some grand announcement hoping to capture the headlines. This year, Prime Minister Morrison announced that Australia, before leaving for Tuvalu, announced that Australia would contribute $500 million for climate adaptation and climate resilience. On the surface, that sounds like a lot of money. And they were hoping to win the battle of the headlines, that the Australian press pack would say, gee, that's generous, Why, you know, give me all this money to the Pacific. But it took about three seconds for people to read the press release and realise that it was not new money. Not one extra penny, not one extra cent was being added in terms of new and additional funding to deal with this question. They were simply rebadging money from the existing aid program. So they were taking money from health programs, education programs, agriculture programs, women empowerment programs, and rebadging it as climate money. 500 million spread over five years. The other thing to know, it's not one year, it's over five years. It's 100 million a year. Once again, sounds like a lot of money. But divide by 14, that's about 7 million each. And all of a sudden you start seeing that what seems like on the surface a generous grant towards the Pacific is in fact not generous. In fact, it's, it's attempt to divide and conquer the unity of the Pacific on these questions by offering good countries a certain amount more and naughty countries a bit less. And it will be negotiated bilaterally, so in a deliberate attempt not to deal with the Forum Island countries as a block, the PSIDS group, the Pacific Small Island Developing States, as a block, um, the aim is to divide and conquer through bilateral negotiations. Now, there's a certain logic. Papua New Guinea is a bigger country than Tokelau or Tuvalu. Um, There's a need to deal with each country differently. But the intent behind it was to make a splash, and it didn't work. Firstly, people saw that there's no new money and were very angry that they were pretending that this was a major contribution, and it isn't. But secondly, I interviewed Prime Minister Sopoanga, and he went on the record to say, listen, this is not about money. This is about whatever money you put on the table is fine, but this is about you reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. This is about you making a stronger, more urgent action. I'm paraphrasing, but you can look up the quote. It was a very strong quote saying, putting money on the table is one thing, but we want you to cut your greenhouse gas emissions. Now, as we know, over the last four years, Australia's emissions are rising. And the other thing that we're doing is we're cheating in terms of our accounting on emissions reduction. Uh, It's a technical thing, but there's a thing called carryover credits from the Kyoto period. The Kyoto Protocol was signed back in 1997. And at the time, Australia was the only country in the world that was allowed to increase emissions 108%. 
we got a special exemption because of land clearing. Then we didn't do the land clearing, so the forest is still there, so we're counting that as, as credits. So when Scott Morrison says we're going to meet our Paris targets, 25-28% reduction by, on 2005 standards, half of that reduction comes from using the accounting credits that we had during the Kyoto Protocol period. Now, no other OECD country is using those carryover credits. They've started afresh from the Paris Agreement in 2015. We, together with the Russians, our good friends the Russians, are people who are cheating by using these carryover credits. Not illegal, really, under the rules, but certainly immoral. And Pacific countries have been saying, don't use carryover credits. We want real reductions, not just paper reductions, not just accounting tricks. We want a fundamental reduction in emissions and a faster reduction than you're currently projecting. And once again, Scott Morrison rejected that Pacific demand not to use carryover credits. So the government's really on the nose, and people saw very quickly that the splash they hoped to make with the $500 million pledge was in fact a dull thud. didn't work, and people were very angry that this was all that Australia was bringing to the table. They weren't going to budge on carryover credits. They weren't going to budge on replenishing the Green Climate Fund. They certainly didn't want the word coal mentioned in any of the communiques. They weren't going to announce in September at the Climate Action Summit any stronger targets. Um, they weren't even going to you know, make a time frame of when they would announce stronger targets. On a whole list of topics that the Pacific are really concerned about, Australia refused to budge. But they knew that was going to happen. Well, yeah, one, one person said, oh, Scott Morrison's, one newspaper headline, I think in the Australian, said, Scott Morrison's walking into an ambush. Well, it's only an ambush when you don't know it's going to happen, you know, when you don't know that the Indians are hiding behind the rock getting ready to scalp you. Morrison walked in knowing that this was a climate forum, Tuvalu. The issue was climate change. There are other topics discussed around West Papua and other things we could talk about, but, but climate was the issue on the table. And he went into the Forum Leaders Retreat with the sort of arrogance that we've seen in recent times as he's wedged the Labor Party and the Greens, as he's introduced more national security legislation and so on. Having won the election, I think he thinks he walks on water. And the problem is the the Leaders Retreat is a particular institution. They have plenary sessions where everyone sits around the table and makes statements. But the Leaders Retreat, the presidents and prime ministers, the 18 of them, go into the room by themselves and talk very frankly. And the main purpose of it is to allow these men and women, who are all politicians or realists, to build friendships, to build alliances, to forge a, a consensus around very difficult paradoxes. You know, how do you do solve this problem of climate change? You know, it's complex. At bare minimum, to establish practical working relationships. You don't have to love each other, but you at least have to work together through the forum. And Morrison failed miserably. It was a disaster. And one of the problems was he came in thinking that people would bow down to Australia. And they won't on this question. This is an existential threat to the security, the livelihoods and the well-being of people in the Pacific. Last year they signed the Boy Declaration saying that climate change was the greatest single threat, the greatest single threat. And Australia signed on to that. Maurice Payne last year signed on to it. Morrison didn't bother going last year. Maurice Payne said that climate change was the greatest single threat. So people want Australia to step up, not on other issues, but on this issue, the single greatest threat. And it's worth remembering Morrison's the new boy, Tui Leapa, the Prime Minister of Samoa. He's been Prime Minister for nearly 20 years. He's seen 
Howard, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison. Morrison is just the latest in a long line of Australian Prime Ministers. And for Morrison to come in and try and bully someone like that, try and say this is the way it goes. So the, the meeting was supposed to go for about seven hours. It went for 12 because Morrison refused to accept the wording that officials had drafted in the communique, tried to renegotiate every line with the leaders. The meeting almost broke down twice, according to people I've spoken to who were in the room. And Morrison really alienated a number of leaders when he demanded that they record how much Australia was giving to the Pacific. I'm paraphrasing, but um, I wasn't in the room, obviously, but from people who were in the room who I've spoken to said, he said, you should be thankful for the amount of money we're giving. I want it on the record how generous we are, at which point the meeting almost collapsed. Prime Minister Bainmarama said, enough is enough. Insulting, condescending, how many more words can you use? Well, those were in fact the very words that people went on the record the next day, and a range of leaders used words like Prime Minister Sopwanga said he was ignorant and neo-colonialist. Prime Minister Bainimarama said he was arrogant, condescending. Pretty strong reactions at a time that Australia claims it's part of the family. This is a mantra that, that Morrison keeps saying, we're part of the Pacific family. And it's like the kids have sort of found out that Dad's a coal addict and beats them, you know, when he goes on the coal. And he had no support at all, did he? Well, it was very interesting that Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, on many questions, not everything, not everything, but on many questions, New Zealand went with the Pacific. It was sort of symbolised at the beginning of the retreat. Um, All the leaders went out to the foreshore, um, which is about 30 metres away from the building where they were meeting. The Tavalans chose a building where you could look at the lagoon out one window and look at the ocean out the other. It was a very narrow strip of land and chosen specifically for that. And the leaders lined up to have their photo taken with all their happy shirts on. Nice design this year, as they often do at these global summits. And as they rushed back out of the heat, back into the, the building, Jacinda Ardern and Varengi Bainimarama strolled very casually together, side by side, chatting, smiling. They were slow enough that every camera could focus on them. And in the retreat, I understand Jacinda Ardern sat next to Bainimarama through the meeting. And indeed, he tweeted, wonders of communication, he tweeted out of the meeting, you know, it's great to have a champion of climate action like Jacinda Ardern. Thank you for your passion on this interest at the Pacific Islands Forum. So this was a bit of a way of wedging Morrison to say, you might be daddy, but mum's with the kids on this occasion. You know, you can be the patriarchal figure, but you're a bit isolated, which is why Morrison's favourite shock jock, Alan Jones, was saying, give her a backhander, shove a sock down her throat, and other vicious, misogynist nonsense coming out of the Morrison cheer squad. And as you can imagine, people in the Pacific looked at that and thought, well, this is where these guys are coming from. Do it our way, or fucking shut up. That didn't go down well. I'm just wondering where the Pentecostal issue came into this with what the people of the Pacific might have expected with this very religious man because there's a lot of Pentecostals in the Pacific. Well, see, Morrison sort of presents himself as, you know, someone who understands the Pacific. You know, he talks about being vuvali. It's a term about family. He doesn't quite understand what it means, but nonetheless, you know, he's a rugby fan and it goes down very well in countries like Fiji and Papua New Guinea who are rugby mad, NRL mad in 
Papua New Guinea, you know, rugby union mad in Fiji and so on. You know, he talks the talk about the step up. And to give him his due, he has done a lot more than Turnbull ever did. Uh, Morrison has visited since he took over in the coup against Dutton and Turnbull. Um, he's visited Fiji, he's visited Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, now Tuvalu. He has announced a whole range of military deployments and police training, a new Pacific Security College at the Australian National University where they're securitizing the whole debate because it's all about China. This is all, you know, about keeping China out. He is more active than Turnbull ever was um, on what they call the Pacific step-up. But... He's got the wrong focus. He comes out of a, a, a church tradition that's about prosperity gospel. You know, if you're rich, if you're wealthy, it's because God's rewarded you for your wealth. You know, you're doing the right thing as a capitalist by, by doing it. And some Pentecostals also believe in the rapture, where the elect will be taken up to heaven and everyone else will be um, sent below. At the worst, it's the, you know, the sort of Israel Falau attitude that... that um, you know, fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and everyone will be punished in hell. There's a counter-theology, though, of climate change in the Pacific. And, in fact, the, the General Secretary of the Tuvalu Church years ago told me this joke. It's a very bad joke, but it's worth repeating. Where a man's standing with water up to his knees, and the water's rising, and it gets to his waist, and a rowboat comes by and says, Jump in, jump in, I'll save you. And the man with water to his waist says, no, 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 God will save me. I have faith in the Lord. The water keeps rising. The water keeps rising and it's up to his neck, almost about to come over his head. And the rowboat, another rowboat comes by and the guy in the rowboat says, jump in, jump in, I'll save you. And the man with water up to his neck says, no, 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 God will save me. The Lord will never forsake me. God's promised to Noah, never shall I smite thee again as I have done with the flood. Learn your Bible when you're doing Pacific climate work. So the water rises over the head and the man drowns and when he gets to the pearly gates he says Lord why did you forsake me and the Lord says I sent you two rowboats so this is the theological argument that action you know you have to act God's stewardship of God's creation there's a whole theology about not sitting on your ass in the Pacific but acting to change the situation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to adapt to the adverse effect of climate change and there's a whole theology about, don't just sit there, get going. And Morrison doesn't come out of that theological tradition. He believes that God's giving us wealth through coal exports. And the more coal we can rip out of the ground before it's banned internationally will contribute to our wealth. And that split between the values that his government exemplifies. This is a man, remember, who brought a lump of coal into Parliament to taunt his enemies. This is a man whose chief of staff used to be a lobbyist for the Mineral Council of Australia. This is a government that includes people like Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce and Angus Taylor, who believe that not only should we be using coal, but we should be expanding coal, building new coal-fired power stations, exporting more coal. This is a government that backs Gina Reinhart, working with an Indian corporation to build a coal mine in the Galilee Basin that's three times as big as Adani. This is a government that relied on the votes of Clive Palmer, who also has tenements in the Galilee Basin. People on the left sometimes say, oh, Palmer's such an idiot, he spent $60 million and wasted it. No, he didn't. He's persuaded people in Queensland that opening up the Galilee Basin is good for them in terms of jobs. It's not. But, you know, there's a whole push around this stuff. And people in the Pacific can see this happening. People in Europe can see this happening. And that's why when Morrison 
you know, is going to be a New York meeting Trump, he probably won't go to the Climate Action Summit. He's probably gutless enough not to go to the Climate Action Summit that the UN Secretary-General is hosting, where people will be putting more on the table, um, will be responding to the demands of vulnerable countries, least developed countries, small island developing states, to take some action around this. And China, meanwhile, sitting back watching all of this? Last year, China had a really bad forum. President Wang'a um, of Nauru, who, by the way, has just lost his seat in uh, Nauru's elections last week. Interesting uh, response. Uh, he's a real champion of Taiwan. And last year, a Chinese diplomat made a huge scene uh, storming out of the forum dialogue session, um, arguing with Wang'a, um, and really did a damage to Chinese diplomacy. This year... Um, that envoy is no longer there. I think he's been sent off to uh, Xinjiang or somewhere, uh, <laughs> battling people in Hong Kong. I don't know what they do to punish people, but he got sacked. And the new Chinese envoy, very smart guy, former Chinese ambassador to Samoa. So even though Tuvalu is also aligned with Taiwan, one of six Pacific countries aligned with Taiwan rather than the People's Republic, the Chinese were very calm, were very measured, won hearts and minds by saying, we'll work with you on climate change. You know, doing it. And that's where Morrison's stuck. You know, the whole purpose of the step up is driven by a policy of strategic denial. Australia, in alliance with the United States, doesn't want a hostile power, read China, to increase its economic and political clout in the Pacific Islands. And the worst case scenario for all the security crats in Canberra is that China establishes a military base or military facilities in the region. So a lot of what's driving Australia's engagement with the region is China not responding to the concerns, development concerns, climate concerns, uh, human security concerns from our neighbouring countries. Well, he didn't do much good last week. It was a disaster in terms of Morrison's relations, not with all Pacific leaders, but with many Pacific leaders. Um, they're pretty pragmatic. They're politicians. They, you know, Some people have been calling for Australia to be kicked out of the forum. I think there's a bit of theatre about that. I think it's a very clear way of showing their displeasure. Bainim Rama certainly was arguing that some years ago. Australia will fight tooth and nail not to lose its foothold in the forum. But I think what we're going to see is the strengthening of Pacific Islander organisations, meeting places, where bodies like PSIDs, the Pacific Small Islander Developing States, which Australia and New Zealand are not part of, the Pacific Island Development Forum, which once again... Prime Minister Bainimarama is chairing. It's a separate body to the Pacific Islands Forum. These are Pacific-only, island-only organisations, and I think over the next few years we're going to see a strengthening of those bodies where islanders can set their own agenda around oceans, around deep-sea mining, uh, self-determination, decolonisation, nuclear disarmament, um, human development, agriculture, fisheries, things that really concern people day by day, without Australia in the room, censoring the communique. Most of my Pacific journalist colleagues laugh when, um, you know, the Australian media reports that Australia is trying to censor the communique. Australia always tries to censor the communique. What's new is that they're trying to build alliances with the Pacific against China, and it's not going too well. And Morrison personally has done himself a damage. And thanks to Nick McClellan for that pricey of... The Pacific Islands Forum. Hopefully next week we'll have Nick back to talk more about what happened at the meeting other than the climate change. That's all for me. 
I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.